What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. Welcome to Evidence Elevates. I'm Parm Padgett and a member of the Moving Forward Task Force. This podcast is the first of a two-part series taken from our recent Educators Town Hall. In this episode, we hear from four different professors about how they have changed their curriculum to reflect contemporary practice. The second episode will focus on the question, answer, and discussion portion of the Educator Town Hall. We hope you enjoy this first episode. My name is Lauren Snowden, and I'm a proud member of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy Moving Forward Task Force. On behalf of our entire task force, We want to thank you for joining us and for being part of what I think is going to be a really exciting experience. Our role as a task force is to support the dissemination and implementation of the moving forward position paper through knowledge translation. We also really have the honor of developing and implementing the Evidence Elevates National Campaign and have put uh, forth many resources and strategies together to support you in elevating your own practice. To provide a little more background, the Moving Forward Task Force discussed how many clinicians, educators, researchers, and professionals continue to rely on those traditional approaches to rehab and intervention, such as NDT, PNF, and NeuroEFRA. As a task force and as an academy, we want to work together to really better understand those challenges associated with embracing evidence-based interventions in favor of traditional models, and we're working to de-implement common clinical practices at the individual or organizational level. The ANPT has really embraced this position of advancing neurologic PT practice in concert with the ever-evolving science and evidence in our fields. So many of us comprise a group of neurologic physical therapy professionals. We are educators, students, residents, clinicians, administrators, and researchers, and many of us fit many different roles. But the journey to become a neurologic PT really starts all at the level of education. So we're really excited for your collaboration and equal excitement over this topic um, to support the changing education in our field to do what our mission is as a task force and as a campaign to elevate our practice, our profession, and patient outcomes. We are thrilled to have an exceptional group of panelists with us tonight. They are educated from a educators from across the country who are going to share their experiences and perspectives. So as our task force always can't help but saying, we are gonna move forward with our first speaker, Dr. Nora Fritz. Hi, good evening, everyone. My name is Nora Fritz. I'm an associate professor jointly appointed in departments of healthcare sciences and neurology at Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, I received my DPT and a DPT PhD program and relevant to tonight's conversation, I was not trained in NDT or in PNF, but rather learned some very specific kind of handling techniques to facilitate early movement with a focus remaining on task specific training. 
But now I teach neuroscience and motor control in the first year of a PT program where NDT and PNF are taught or at least introduced. Uh, for the motor control course, we use the Shumway, Cook, and Woolicott text, um, which I suspect many of you also use. And in light of the recent conversations around moving forward, I think it's pretty interesting to consider the initial chapters of this textbook, which dive into the historical context of motor control theories and the associated interventions that really resulted from what was the latest knowledge of the day. So for example, this text introduces the hierarchical theory and then discusses neurofacilitation approaches like Rood and Brunstrom and Bobath and PNF. There was a pre-submission question that came in um, about whether to provide this kind of historical perspective or not. And given that NDT and PNF are specifically mentioned in the moving forward paper, I think it's important to use the motor control course as a platform that starts the discussion around how interventions evolve over time. Uh, because students are likely to hear more about these kinds of techniques and encounter them in their clinical rotations or even in clinical practice. Um, so the text provides a figure, which I put on my slide, and it really demonstrates this process of how motor control theories lead to new rehabilitation models. Um, and what's particularly important is that each theory contributes to our knowledge and to the development of subsequent intervention models. And the idea of subsequent theories is that they really overcome limitations of the prior theory. And so our interventions have to evolve too, to include the components that overcome any limitations that we had with prior interventions. So that is to say that although our interventions must evolve with increasing knowledge, there are some elements that get carried forward into the contemporary task-oriented approach. And the way that we discuss those ideas needs to change over time too. So I know Dr. Cotter will discuss that further with some specific examples, um, and we'll talk more about it in the Q&A too, I'm sure. Um, so as I mentioned, just like we discuss each theory of motor control, I find that it's critical to discuss limitations of the interventions that are associated with each of those theories. And I just add a few minutes of discussion around the theories and the associated interventions to provide this kind of framework for students to discuss interventions with their CIs or with other clinicians that they encounter and to be advocates for moving forward and evidence elevates. Uh, motor control is a good place to start those kind of conversations. In our program, at least, it's in the first year. And so that really lets you lay the groundwork for the subsequent neuro courses that will come afterward. Um, and now I'll turn it over to Dr. Potter. Hi, everyone. I'm Kirsten Potter, and I'm a professor and director of curriculum assessment and assessment at Tufts University, Seattle. Uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us tonight. So I graduated from PT school way back in 1985. And when I graduated, uh, or when I was in school, um, I received absolutely no training in, in a task-oriented approach. All of my training related to working with patients with neurologic problems revolved around NDT, PNF, and Brunstrom. And I use these techniques for a number of years, but within, I'd say, gosh, probably five years, I noticed that there was a change in practice towards a more contemporary task-oriented approach. Uh, so I was faced with having to learn that and then think about how was that going to influence my teaching. 
teaching. Um, I got my first full-time faculty appointment in 1993. And during that time at that institution, and I was there for quite some time, uh, 14 years, I did teach both neurotherapeutic facilitation and task-oriented approaches. So I developed a curriculum that kind of used both of those um, kind of theories and practices. I, I um, then went and taught at Northwestern where none of that was taught, then took my third faculty position in uh, 2013. And um, when I was when I was hired, I, I almost immediately tried to start to gently change the curriculum. Uh, the curriculum was very much focused on PNF at that time. And the more I got involved in teaching the curriculum, the more I emphasized task-oriented approaches. That said, I did still use some facilitation approaches, particularly those techniques that I found um, helpful in my own practice, but also those that either helped work on strengthening, such as some of the PNF techniques, as well as something that helped improve mobility, things like bed mobility and some of the things that some of our more dependent patients would, would need. Um, that said, I really emphasized why were we using those things, um, those techniques with um, from a more contemporary task oriented perspective. So I didn't get overly focused in on normalizing movement or using specific hand placements or moving out of a synergistic pattern. I kind of labeled these uh, labs as using your hands wisely. And the common question I would ask my students is, why would a contemporary task-oriented PT use whatever technique it was? Uh, more recently, however, I collaborated with a colleague to remove facilitation labs entirely. And um, in that process, we made sure to communicate uh, the changes that we were making um, in our in our neural curriculum and why we were making those with our DCE, who then translated that information over to clinical faculty and also with students. Some tips that I have for you in terms of how to go about uh, de-implementing use of some of these more traditional techniques is to still provide historical context to students. I do think it's important that students understand where we've been so that they can appreciate more closely where we are today and why. And they'll be able to, they'll be more um, prepared to engage in conversations about the neurotherapeutic facilitation techniques if that comes up when they're out on practice. I think another thing to think about is, is that if you are, unless you are working, unless you are teaching on an island where you're the only neuroeducator, which is probably unlikely um, for many, but not all of you, you're going to probably need to negotiate with colleagues resistant to change. Um, I know I have faced that. Recently, I read the book Think Again by Adam Grant. I highly recommend it. Um, it just provides some really good strategies for having those difficult conversations. Lastly, I would suggest that you consider not only the what are you teaching, but the how are you teaching. When we think about both handling as well as when we think about teaching and learning in general, less is often more. If you de-implement some of the techniques that um, are not currently are not supported by current evidence, you will have more time to infuse active learning and repetition into your students' classroom experience, which is likely to enhance their learning. Also, in terms of of uh, what to focus on, 
other than contemporary techniques, problem solving and evidence-based practice, when and how to use hands. We still have patients that can't move. Not all of our patients can walk. And so we need to use our hands and students need to be able to figure out how to use their hands. Um, and then also, I, I, one of the things I found very helpful was helping my students appreciate what's sort of, what are some of the differences between neuro-PT practice and musculoskeletal PT practice? My patients at my prior institute we're taking a course on, on um, musculoskeletal and care of patients with spine injuries. And they were so focused on using their hands that when they came to my class and they were doing problem solving and thinking about the environment and thinking about using motor learning principles, they, they really struggled with making that change. So helping them understand practice differences is key. And lastly, we can help our students and our CIs know that the NPT is changing. I recently sat in on a webinar on the changes, upcoming changes to the NPTE, and there's an increased emphasis that's going to be placed on examination-related questions, and that's because of the growing body of evidence related to outcome measures and those things. And as a result, there's also fewer intervention questions, and this is due um, partly due to the number of questions that they have, but also because the information that they collected from clinicians reflects that clinicians are not using neurotherapeutic facilitation approaches as, as, um, as often these days. So the NPT is changing. Um, I did have, we did have one question related to the NPTE and how to move forward. I think another thing is um, students may still see um, neurotherapeutic facilitation approaches, PNF questions in NPTE prep books. I think it's important to help them understand that those prep books do take time to change. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to see those questions on the board exam. And there are many, many um, programs uh, that don't teach facilitation approaches that um, that uh, where they have outstanding um, scores on NPTE exams. So I think that there's growing evidence that our students are safe not learning those and they can still succeed on the NPT exam, provided they can think and problem solve. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Kristen. And uh, I'm going to revisit some of the similar uh, ideas of the previous two speakers, um, but put my own spin on it. My name is Patty Kluding. I am professor and department chair at University of Kansas Medical Center. And uh, kind of the same era as, as Kristen, I, I graduated in 1992, which was right after publication of the two-step book, if anybody remembers from back then. Two-step was a was a really important conference in uh, 1990, and then there was a book that was published that I actually used as a textbook right next to the textbooks I, I was using uh, to teach um, NDT and, and the traditional approaches. And so from the beginning of my my own education and then as, a, as an early faculty member, um, there was, there's always been this tension between these two different approaches and how do we blend them. And in fact, uh, two-step was really kind of about the motor, in, introducing the ideas of uh, motor learning and motor control into practice. Um, and so I, I was obviously strongly influenced by that. But at that point early in my career, we were spending, you know, weeks of lecture and lab time on PNF and weeks on NDT. And then, you know, it, it, it was, it was blended in that way. Um, so, you know, Kirsten and, and the other speakers will talk about a little bit more detail about what happened between now and then. I'm happy to revisit that. But but where I'm at now with the courses that I teach is um, I have almost no NDT or PNF mentioned uh, only in 
brief, really brief historical context. And, and the entire course is really both the assessment and the intervention, the problem solving, the clinical reasoning is really framed around task-specific training. And although we may use our hands and, and you know, of course, support that uh, patient's learning through manual guidance, the, the goal is, you know, presented to take that guidance away as soon as possible, as soon as safe for the, for the patient and let them learn uh, through their own, own practice and own skills. Um, I also uh, use the Show My Cook and, Cook and Willicott text, um, as Nora mentioned earlier, and I just wanted to maybe mention that um, FSBPT did a textbook survey. I believe the most recent one was in 2020, and this textbook was listed as the um, top four, fourth most commonly used textbook in all physical therapy uh, uh, education programs, at least the ones that responded to the survey. And so, so I think that um, again makes me feel better about the the idea that 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 this book and this framework is is something that seems to work for a lot of PT programs. Um, part of that fast forward and, and moving from you know over the years is uh, dialogue with clinical partners. And I know when the moving forward um, uh, statement position statement was published a couple of years ago, uh, my first reach out was to our DCE and to our clinical partners that take our students and having conversations about, um, you know, this is what where we're going as a profession, this is what we're doing in our program, and, and making sure that there's dialogue, um, you know, about that and, and, you know, making sure that there's there's not any concerns about it and just kind of opening those conversations. And I think that's something that we'll continue to, to talk about um, during the Q&A probably as, as we go through that. I also wanted to mention that um, even I, I've not seen any concerns with uh, not only the MPT score, but with clinical practice. Occasionally, students will contact me on the clinic and say, you know, there's I'm learning this these new diagonal patterns, you know, and, and they don't really recognize what they're, you know, that they're that they're actually historical. They're thinking that they're new because it's new to them. Um, but really, again, that's just a that's just a conversation that's had. It's not ever been brought to me that, you know, your students aren't prepared or your students aren't learning what they need to learn for practice. It's that they're they're learning in the clinic from their from their clinicians and they're learning their um the the clinicians' perspectives just like they would uh with anything. So uh so my key points or tips to promote change. Uh one of the things that I find students really uh resonate thinking about uh their own experiences learning uh motor tasks and I have them reflect on what the best coaches they've encountered in their in their lives. Um, and that coach may provide manual guidance and instruction. But then again, the, the real learning happens when the coach is providing um, environmental supports and other types of practice opportunities um, and feedback for to promote individual performance. So I think that's that's maybe just a different spin on patient handling, uh, more, more in the context of how, how you might provide. Uh, manual guidance as part of feedback or as part of instruction to improve performance. I also think as educators, I feel a, a responsibility to role model um, not just uh, evidence-based practice, uh, you know, and, and promote uh, research-based clinical practice, but also evidence-based education. And so what is working, you know, Krista Chris, mentioned, um, you know, the cognitive load and, and how we teach, and I think that's important to, to really consider and, and role model as well. I also think dialogue and debate is good. I welcome conversations um, like this panel and, and other conversations we've been part of um, to kind of provide uh, respect for different opinions, but also uh, recognizing that, um, you know, the, the faculty member who's teaching the course is ultimately responsible 
And so I really, uh, I take that responsibility very seriously and I, I don't, I'm not swayed easily, uh, you know, by, by one person's opinion or, you know, one clinical uh, instructor's opinion, um, you know, just kind of coming back to the evidence and coming back to our professional guidance. Um, and then again, you know, de-implementation is good. It's part of growth. It's part of change. Sometimes I get a little frustrated thinking that back in the, uh, you know, early 90s, we were starting this conversation and we're still some in some ways still having the same conversation, although I think we've, we've certainly moved a long way and, and we're continuing to move a long way. But uh, that's why the work of this uh, this task force is so important. And, and I'm happy to be part of this panel and, and support the conversation. Um, and then I think I'm finished and I will uh, move to Heather and let her, her have her talk. Thank you. All right. Good, uh, good evening, everyone. I'm Heather Knight. Uh, I am on faculty at Creighton University in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, I have been trained, I guess, uh, in PNF and NDT through residency education, as well as CEU opportunities, but I was never uh, officially or formally certified. So kind of sharing that as my lens in that I've been a physical therapist now for 15 years and in PT education since 2014. Um, so I definitely am very open with our students about uh, some of that historical perspective, but the fact that you also, uh, even though we might hear that others have been certified, don't need to be certified to help people move. And so that emphasis on function is the lens that I come to the table with. Um, also a little bit about my background in 2016 to 2018, we had a program-wide curriculum revision. And that's a little bit important in those who have done it before know the workload that goes along with that. And so a little bit of my lens was just as I started to consider the goal of implementing some of these things um, was workload and what was manageable. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit as well. And then um, also my perspective is with residency education as I'm residency trained myself. I've been a residency mentor for uh, many years now and a residency program coordinator for five years. So hoping to also give a little bit across the continuum of PT education perspective as well. So um, as I started to approach this conversation, uh, I did not really feel like overhauling a whole course again. So I took the approach of making those small curricular up updates that would make hopefully lasting changes. Um, and also thinking about our curriculum is a very integrated curriculum. So who are my collaborators in that effort and who would be helpful to be on my team? And then also a little bit about um, what are things that are outside of my control? So I think some of the questions that came in before were also about what about PNF or NDT that fall into other, other domains, for example, the orthopedic or MSK series. And I, I can't say I necessarily tackled that because I, I don't feel like I'm an expert in the orthopedic realm either. So I started with my neuros, neuro lens and focused in on that and what I could change there first. Um, of course, having dialogue with those who um, were open to it and kind of also explaining my rationale for changing our neuro curriculum and making those small changes. Um, thankfully, I had little resistance, but I, I haven't also, you know, fought the good fight in ortho either. So um, the other kind of thought here was letting, and I think my other Panel presenters mentioned this as well, but letting the student outcomes guide us as well. So I was also 
hesitant to do a large curriculum overhaul of a course when, when we had strong student outcomes. And so I wanted to make small changes over time and kind of also see how the students were during, doing on those learning outcomes and the assessments. So hopefully that can also guide your reasoning process as you start to think about what's feasible in your, your programs or not. I kind of fell in this bucket of making small but steady change over time, which I feel like is progress towards the end goal. Um, and also trying to be respectful of those around me, as well as um, ensure when we're working with, we have a lot of lab educators that come in and serve as lab assistants and trying to help keep everybody on the same page. It's um, for me, it was more manageable to do that in small intervals. So I kind of picked a couple of labs to start with. And so that first bullet point there, thinking about a gradual removal of the PNF and NDT terminology, I picked a couple labs to start with and how could I pull out the terminology and just focus on function? So as opposed to labeling all the different handling skills, focusing on wanting to help mobilize my patient. And so for example, with starting early gate, I use the framework of early mobilization, right? And what do I need to help provide them stability and stance? And as we start to move into gate, um, and walking, things like that. So how do I initially mobilize somebody when I don't have, um, have equipment with me or thinking about in that acute care setting, you want to just start getting the patients up and moving. So um, a kind of nice surprise of pulling some of those techniques out and just focusing on function was really that emphasis on decreasing the cognitive load. So they were able to focus in on the movement and where did they need to just uh, provide that assistance to get them moving? And then they could focus on when they could pull back as well. So um, it was kind of a nice surprise that I didn't initially really think about. And I know my other panel members had kind of mentioned the cog cognitive load, but with all the handling and specific placement of hands with the historical kind of facilitation techniques, it was just a lot for students to keep track of. And so if we took that all away, they were able to kind of focus in more. Um, along with that revision of the curriculum, I also started revising test questions to mirror what was important related to the mobility aspect and moved away from the specific facilitation techniques, um, but really emphasizing how they prioritize interventions. So I think another big takeaway is thinking about emphasizing clinical reasoning and, you know, talking about the evidence around the different interventions. And for example, of course, I would love to get my patient up and do high intensity training if I have the equipment to do so safely. But what if my patient is a max assist of two and I am the only therapist and I don't have equipment? It's the, it's the time I couldn't get an aid or whatever. Um, they need to still need to be able to do something skilled with the patient. And so um, kind of helping them prioritize if I don't have ideal, how do I start uh, still creating therapeutic interventions that are going to benefit the patient? And so kind of the one remaining lab where maybe there is a little bit of the NDT component left would be related to um, bed mobility and rolling, where we talk about it in terms of a functional task and helping them roll and exercise, activate that core muscle activation. So we kind of went, we start to talk about that hierarchy, like what is my top priority if I have the ability to do it, as opposed to um, when I may be a lone ranger and um, don't have some of the things for a one treatment intervention. 
Um, my, my colleagues have already mentioned this, but I think it's really important to engage our students as well as residents and then the lab assistants in that rationale for change. Also, um, our residents serve as lab assistants in our, in our labs. And so um, that consistent message back from the lab assistants is really important for the students. So they're not getting mixed messages. And, um, and that's been kind of important for us in standardizing the information that's going to our lab educators. So the students are getting a consistent message. And I just wanted to add, I think a strategy that I've tried to be more intentional about recently um, is just whenever you add something, because it seems like we've had a plethora of clinical practice guidelines come out. Um, there's just all sorts of things coming out, which are great. But as you add things, identifying what else needs to be pared down or taken away, um, and how can we really funnel that information to keep it streamlined for our students so they can focus in on what is most important and also then put it in the context of what's meaningful for the patient because that's ultimately what's important. Um, and so, you know, it's an ongoing, I guess, effort in that area, but my kind of final thought to leave you with. And that concludes episode one of our two-part series taken from the recent Educators Town Hall. We'd like to thank Dr. Nora Fritz, Dr. Kirsten Potter, Dr. Patricia Cluding, and Dr. Heather Knight. We encourage you to listen to part two to hear how these panelists respond to questions posed by the audience. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.